This podcast is a presentation of Indianola First Assembly of God Church. For more information, please visit us online at indianolafirst.com. Well, we've been uh, in a series for the last several weeks. This will be the third week and that we've called 714, and it's a series based off of the great revival verse found in 2 Chronicles 714. And this verse, more than any other verse in the Word of God, church, gives us the recipe for revival. How many think we need revival today? You do? <laughs> really? Because there's some conditions that have to be met for the promise of this verse. And so when we read this verse, it just nails us between the eyes. It hits us right here in the heart. If you hear it. 2 Chronicles 7.14, that verse does say, if my people, if my people, God's people, who are called by my name, Christians, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. And church, when I say, do we need revival, and we get an amen, yes, we need revival, that sounds like a lukewarm response. That sounds like a liturgy, church, where we just say, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Do we need revival? Yes. Hallelujah. We need it. I mean, that word in itself should spark some kind of energy in you that says, yes, we need it. We need it now. I scare anybody? I hope so. We need it. And I think the church has gotten used to saying we need revival. It's become a religious word rather than a word that is absolutely Holy Spirit driven and, and one of those things that we absolutely need. We just get kind of callous to things after a while, don't we? We need a healing in our land. We absolutely do. Not just politically, but spiritually. In fact, the only way to see political change how many, knows we, how many know we could see a little bit, we, we could use some political change, right? Yeah. The only way to see that is to first have a spiritual renewal or revival. And again, revival is taking that which has been alive at some point and now is dead and reviving it, bringing it back to life, breathing new life into it, seeing it come alive again so that it's not dead anymore. That's revival during these four weeks, we're kind of dissecting this Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles seven fourteen word by word. Also, our sermon series follows our book of the month this month. I've said this every week. I'll continue to say it. A book that every single one of you should read because it is such an easy read. It's such a good read. It's something that you should read every single year. But it's called If 714 by Bob Vanderplatz. Wonderful, wonderful book. And if you know, Bob Vanderplatz is the president and CEO of the Iowa Family Leader. He's one of our hometown boys kind of thing, and just put a great book together on this verse. So we started a couple weeks ago with the word if, and whenever you see the word if in the Bible, I hope you remember that it either follows a promise or it precedes a promise. And, if the, if, and, and the, if, the if points to the conditions of that promise. It always does. This is to say that the promises of God's word always have conditions attached to them. When the conditions of the if are met, then the blessings of the promise will come to pass. In the case of 
Second Corinthians, or I'm sorry, I keep saying that. Second Chronicles 7:14, the if precedes the promise of our land being healed, and the if points to the conditions that are attached to that promise. We also talked about the meaning of, of my people who are called by my name, and these words tell us who the promise is for and who the conditions must be met by. My people is possessive. How many are glad that God calls us his people? He says, my people. He possesses us. He desires us. He wants us. We're his. I love that. I'm not just some being out here that can't, can't connect with God. God actually uh, calls me his own. His own. And he calls you that as well if you've given your, your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're his own. God is a jealous God when it comes to his people. They are his. We talked about what it means to be his. Only those that receive him, those who believe in his name, these are the ones that he gave the right to become children of God, according to 1 John 1.12. And you know, it's, it's interesting. You hear people say, well, all people are God's children. Can I just be really politically incorrect here and say that that is not true? God loves all people, and God wants all people to be his children, but the only ones that are truly his people, the ones he gave the right to be called his sons and daughters, are those that receive the Lord Jesus Christ into their heart. That's the truth. And people don't like to hear that because it doesn't sound very nice. Because Pastor Barry just said that some people out there are not God's children. I, I absolutely did. I'm unapologetic about it because I believe what the word of God says. And if you don't like it, if you don't believe it, look up John 1.12. It says it verbatim. Verbatim. Called by my name. We went over that. Everyone who has become a true child of God by accepting him has a call upon their life, a call to live for him out loud and go and make disciples of all nations. To be called by his name is to not take the Lord's name, Christian, identifying as a Christian. Everybody's identifying as everything these days. I identify as a Christian. How's that? As a blood-bought, sold-out child of the living God. Maybe even a little Bible thumping in there somewhere. That's who I identify as. Everyone who, is, who identifies themselves as a Christian, they've taken on the name of Jesus and we certainly don't want to do that in vain. We're called. Those people are called. Last week we talked about two of the conditions of this promise. We had to humble ourselves and we must pray, right? Humble ourselves and pray. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, get rid of the pride, and pray, I love what C.S. Lewis said about humility. We talked about this last week. Just want to give you a little review. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Profound statement. Striving to think of others first, putting others' needs above your own. Prayer is simply being in constant communication with God. It's having that ongoing conversation with him that lasts all day long. We talked about that last week. God answers prayer, doesn't he? It's our lifeline. It's how we fight our battles. For the Christian, it should be the first thing we do every day and the last thing we do every evening before we fall asleep. It's the greatest weapon we have against the enemy of our souls, prayer. And much of the church is prayerless. 
They don't pray. They've just grown cold to it. They've become callous to it. Don't forget that prayerlessness is the ultimate act of pride. See, we are humble. We have to humble ourselves to pray. Prayer is the evidence or the measure of our humility. Because when we declare our need for God by, through prayer and we ask and we actually go to prayer, that's exactly what we're doing. We're declaring our need for God and our dependency, dependency upon him every single day. Humbling yourselves, praying. First two conditions that must be met. The second two conditions that we're going to go over today. And seek my face. Humble yourselves and pray and seek my face. God calls his people to seek his face. And I, I just got to thinking, what does that actually mean? And how is it different than prayer? We know it's closely related to prayer. I mean, when you're praying, you're, you're seeking the Lord, obviously. You're seeking his face. I, I know that's true, but how is seeking your face? Why is it listed separately? There must be a reason. There must be something different about it. And basically, as I studied this out, I'll say it this way, where prayer is the communication that we have with God. How many know prayer is that two-way conversation, right? Where we hear and we listen. Are you with me this morning? Seeking God's face is less about communication and more about coming to an understanding of God's heart, his character, his love, his desires. It's knowing him and his ways. When you pray, you communicate with God. He talks to you, you talk to him. It's two-way conversation. When you seek his face, and it might be while you're praying, you are hearing the heart of God and you're getting to know him. To know him. It's a little different. It's a little deeper. It takes us a little further into his presence, I believe. Prayer and seeking his face, again, certainly go hand in hand. And just as we find ourselves praying more fervently and vigorously when difficult circumstances invade our life, how many have ever experienced that? Something comes up, it's difficult, it's scary, whatever happens, it's a circumstance, it's a situation, and all of a sudden your prayer life increases. Am I the only one that that happens to? No? Are you, are, are you guys awake today? Yes. All right. Maybe it's so hot all weekend that you're just, uh, seem a little dead today. That's happened to all of us, hasn't it? Where we, we pray more because something happens. And we should be praying all the time when we know that, but that's just kind of how it works sometimes. And just as that's true about prayer, I think that's true in reference to uh, seeking his face. When we personally go through overwhelming situations, we tend to seek out his heart and press into his presence to try and just even catch a glimpse of his ways to understand him more deeply. I don't understand what's going on, God. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't get this circumstance. I don't get this situation. It's overwhelming to me, and we just find ourselves more than even praying. We're trying to figure God out, and we're seeking his face. We're trying to get to know him. You see the difference? Trying to get to know him. Closely related, but they are different. And it's a natural thing to do. King David did this in Psalm 27, 4. He said, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He's talking about being in the presence of God, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. That's a pretty profound statement of a guy who was the king. I mean, he's the, he's the greatest king that Israel ever seen. 
and they loved him for it. And he says, only one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. I want to be in church all day long, every day for the rest of my life. I want to be in God's presence is what he's saying. To really gaze upon the Lord's face, to seek his face and seek him in his temple. 27.8, just a few verses into the, further into the chapter says, David says, as my heart says of you, seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. David knew the key to seeking the Lord's face. And notice that David's focus is to seek God's presence, to stay in his presence. And when that is your priority, church, when you make it your priority to seek God in his face, everything else falls into place. That's the way it works. It's the secret that David knew oh so well. And so many of us within the church today miss. We, church is something we schedule. It's not something we live. It's something we do one day a week instead of walking and being God's people and staying in his presence continually day in and day out. It's so easy to be distracted by everything going on in our busy lives. Seeking the face of God always aligns our priorities with God's will and his priorities. You know God has priorities? Anybody awake today? Man, you are just quiet as can be. You know, it, maybe you all got extra, uh, too much sleep because all the kids are at camp this week. We have 52 kids at camp this week. Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord. Little kids. And there's still some downstairs, I believe, but there's not quite as many. They're all at camp. Everybody got extra sleep and now they're tired. But seeking the face of God always aligns our priorities with God's will and his priorities. It's, again, it's so easy to be distracted by everything. Truly seeking his face and making uh, uh, knowing his heart, making that your priority, aligns your life with Jesus and his will. To know his heart. To not just pray and give him your list of things you want and desire and then listen and, and hear him a little bit. It's to seek his face. It's to stay there until you know that 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 you've heard the voice of God, that you know his heart, that you know what his desires even are. His priorities. All of that. Coaches, teachers, employers, parents have probably all said, or at least thought of saying, look at me when I'm talking to you. How many have ever said that as a parent? My, my daughter is at camp. She's helping with the worship for camp this week. Our youth worship team is doing camp worship all week long. Isn't that cool? Praise God. That's awesome. But anyway, um, my daughter Anna, she was a little... Um, Actually, Amelia did this too. Uh, but when I would say, look at me when I talk to you, they would look another direction. Did anyone ever experience that? <laughs> and so then I grabbed their little face, not too hard, but just grabbed their little face and try to point their face at me and their eyes would go like this and they would not look at me in their, my face. Why, have you ever experienced that? With kids? They're like, Arr! eyes would go in the back of their heads so they didn't have to look me in the face. Why is that? Because they knew 
if we eyeballed each other, that I would know their heart and they would know mine. And they didn't want to hear it at the moment. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Maybe I should do that in church. <laughs> Look at me when I talk. <laughs> but isn't that true? There's something about gazing into the face of the one you are communicating with that allows you to understand more deeply their actual heart's desires. The eyes are the window to the soul, the mind, will, and emotions of someone. Seeking God's face, being in his presence, is like looking into the eyes of the one who knows all and sees all. This is exactly what Isaiah experienced in his vision of the Lord's temple, and we just sang about it over and over and over, and I hope you got it this morning. Isaiah 6, chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Let me just pause there for a second. I preached the whole message on this at, uh, several years ago. But King Uzziah, if you don't know, is the embodiment of pride. You could literally say this verse, in the year that pride died. And wouldn't that work with our verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14? Pride, you gotta humble yourselves. In the year that pride died, Isaiah, I, saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, Isaiah said, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So in the midst of God's presence, when he was experiencing this, look at me when I'm talking to you kind of thing, Eyeball to eyeball, seeking the face of the Lord, seeing God, being in his manifest presence right there in the throne room of God. The first thing that Isaiah, the mouthpiece of God, the man of God, one who is totally used by God and given over to God, the first thing he says that comes out of his mouth is, I am ruined. Why? Because when you're in the presence of God, you will see his holiness and you will see your lack of holiness. You will see his greatness and you will see the lack of greatness in you. You will see how wonderful and awesome he is and you'll see how wonderful and awesome you are not. Now, you're all wonderful. But compared to God, we're nothing. That's why his word says, be holy as I am holy. It should be our Christian duty to strive for holiness, to strive to be like God, to behave in a way that's like God, to walk in the ways that he walks and to have the character of God in every situation and circumstance. That should be our desire. When Isaiah experienced the presence of God, he was overwhelmed by the holiness of God and he realized what chance do I have? What chance 
do I have to be in this room because I can't stand there with a holy God? Now, I hope and pray that none of you in here said, well, I would have a chance because I'm a very good person. Let me just say, it has nothing to do with being a good person. Good, don't get her done. Blood-bought does. And Jesus has come and died and become our sacrifice so that we could enter into the holy of holies, so that we could be in the presence of God and know that we are redeemed and set free and forgiven. I'm getting into a whole new sermon there. Seeking the face of God will take you into his presence and he will expose everything in your heart. See, it's a scary thing to go into the presence of God. When I said come down to worship this morning, if you wanted, and I don't know if a few people did or if anybody did, it doesn't really matter to me. It doesn't, I mean, I, I would hope you would want to do that. But as people would come down and do that, what they're saying is I want to get out of my pew and I want to get rid of the distractions and I just want to get before the Lord. I want to be in his presence. And when you do that, it's scary. Why? Because he will expose everything to you. He will show you everything that's, up, that's not good and those things that are good too, but those things that aren't so good. And your reaction might be just as Isaiah's was, I'm ruined. But don't ever forget that we have a Savior who sent his only son to die for our sins. And then we get those things under the blood and we're set free from them. Church, to seek his face can be a scary thing. But there's no highway option here. If we want revival, it's one of the conditions. Not only do we humble ourselves, not only do we pray, but we seek his face and we drive, we push, we press into his presence to let him tell us anything he wants to. Our flesh don't like that. I don't like to be told all the things I did wrong. How about you? I don't like that. And God doesn't do it like a big bully. He lovingly says, adjust this, change this. There's one more condition that has to be met. It says, and turn from their wicked ways. And that's kind of what we're talking about already, isn't it? It's important to remember who this verse is directed at. It's directed at God's people. This isn't for the world. If my people, if my people, not if the people, if we want a revival in America, it, the, the verse doesn't read, if the people of America will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. No, it says, if my people, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So when God says that one of the criteria, one of the conditions to this promise is that his people, his own possessions, would turn from their wicked ways, he's absolutely talking about you and me. And most of us don't think of ourselves as wicked. I mean, stand up if you're wicked. Nobody stands up. I didn't think you would. Nobody really wants to say that. But God, again, isn't talking about our pre-salvation condition here. He's talking about our current condition, our sin, our wicked thoughts, our wicked actions, and our flesh that often gets in the way of fulfilling its gluttonous desires. The flesh is always a glutton. 
It always wants more and more and more and more. And whether it's some kind of substance addiction, whether it's food or sexual lust or power mongering or fame or, or the love of money, or the, the flesh just wants more and more and more, doesn't it? It always, it never gets enough. It's a glutton. This is exactly why Isaiah cried, I am ruined. Because being in the presence of God, again, exposed the truth of who we really are. He saw the holiness of God and the wickedness within. Even a godly man, like Isaiah, was exposed. And the word turn, turn from their wicked ways. I want you to really understand what this word means. It means this. Pretty profound, huh? Turn, turn, to go the other direction, to turn from their wicked ways. Turning away from the wicked things that appeal to our flesh and turn towards God. What's the promise? Hearing from heaven. And how many just want your prayers to be answered? And they are, aren't they? They're yes and amen. The promises of God are yes and amen to those that love him. Right? Our prayers for healing that we had this morning, we want those to be heard, and God hears them. But how many have ever experienced praying and then wondering if God heard you at all? I don't understand. I don't understand what God's doing. I don't understand. I can't hear him. I don't know if he's hearing me. Hearing from heaven is a promise in this verse. When the four conditions are met, what are they? Humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways. Then, and then only, will he hear from heaven. He'll hear our prayers from heaven. He'll forgive our sins. And when he forgives your sins, they're gone, man. They're completely wiped out. And he'll heal our land. Hallelujah. It's a magnificent promise that we will go more deeply into next week of what that means. But the conditions of this promise can't be overlooked. Again, humble yourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from your wicked ways. And God wants us all to experience that uh, Holy Spirit revival that would be poured out on our city and surrounding area. He always keeps his promises, but we must meet the conditions of those promises. What would Indianola look like? What would Warren County look like? What would Norwalk, what would Winterset, what would Cummings and, and uh, uh, Knoxville and, and all the towns in between? Parole, is that really a town? <laughs> Truro. Piru. I mean, it's funny how Iowa can't get their own town names, isn't it? It's like, it's Peru. No, it's Piru. Yeah, you don't say Peru. It's Piru. Okay. All these surrounding towns, what would they look like if revival really came? I'll tell you what will happen, number one. People will come to Christ in the masses. And that excites me. Miracles will be poured out, and we will see God move. Signs and wonders will follow those that believe. There's a lot of believers, and there's not many signs and wonders following them. Why is that? 
Maybe the conditions of this recipe for revival verse aren't being met. Maybe the church isn't humble. Maybe the church is arrogant. Maybe the church is elitist. Maybe they're not praying. The average Christian prays seven seconds a day, I've been told. I don't know if that's true. I don't think that's true in this church, but the average Christian prays seven seconds a day. That might be a reason signs and wonders don't follow those that believe. Maybe they're not seeking his face. Maybe they're afraid to seek his face because of what they'll find out about themselves. Maybe they're not turning from their wicked ways. Maybe they're just camping out and saying, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than my neighbor. I'm better than the person who sits across the church from me. I'm doing more good things than they are, so I'm going to be fine. I will get in because of my good works. And folks, let me tell you, again, your good works aren't going to, isn't going to do it. You cannot be good enough to, to be accepted into heaven. There's no one who can. That's why we needed the blood of Jesus to wash our sins away. But you have to receive that gift. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First Assembly of God podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest message.